This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today's episode focuses mainly on cover crops. You're going to get a perspective from both a farmer, Greg Amundsen, and an extension agronomist, Greg Endress. Yes, they're both named Greg, so don't let that confuse you. We talk about starting out in cover crops from the beginning, the challenges, the mindset required, and the data that's going to help inform cover crop decisions in the future. We'll begin today's episode with Greg Amundsen. He's a fourth generation farmer who farms with his dad near Gilby, North Dakota. The journey started for them when they got into an equip program through the NRCS. I guess the journey started, I don't know exact year, but we noticed a lot of wind blowing out for edible beans back when we used to raise a lot of edible beans. That's kind of how it started. At that time, I didn't really know many people at NRCS or Soil Conservation Office. We kind of got into it. I called them up and we got into an ECRIP program about putting cover crop and or not working our edible bean ground. So that's kind of how it started. And my dad thought, oh, this isn't going to work. And so then we got into it and well, this seems to be working pretty good. Okay. What's the next step? Let's try this. Let's try that. And then it's just kind of snowballed into effect of now pretty much we're trying to transition to full no-till. Now that seemed like a pretty big transition, especially for Greg's dad, who'd been farming a long time. I wondered what they saw that encouraged them they were on the right path. Yeah, so the first year, I think it was 2013, we did rye and radish mix. And the next spring in 14 was wet. So we had a little trouble with just straight rye and radish without grass out there. It got really slimy. But what we saw where it was dry is it opened up the ground. We had all these radish holes for the water to infiltrate down. And then the ground was so much mellower. It's, you know, less compaction, just completely different soil to work with. What'd you plan into that the next year? Most of that was corn. So that's kind of how it started. What's your cover crop program look like now? Our cover crop program now consists of, we pretty much use whatever we have. And then also, I really like rye, but there are certain places and certain reasons for that. I really like radishes and we're instituting buckwheat and flax a lot now. So we're getting kind of a little more diverse, but we haven't ventured into too much off the chart stuff. Like right now, our barley will be planted here the next couple of days. A lot of that's leftover seed we had from the spring. So there's a little bit of sunflowers, a little bit of corn, a little bit of everything in there. And so your goal then is mostly just to make sure you get a good diverse mix to cover it, uh, or are those selected for other purposes? After barley, I try to select the rashes, of course. I always like rashes to try to break it up a little bit. I think we're putting sedan grass in. I really like what sedan grass does to soil in the spring. really mellows it out. And the buckwheat, we haven't seen it on soil tests or anything yet, but we're thinking that it'll help release some extra phosphorus that's available. And just a flax, just because it stands good in the winter and doesn't hold the snow. We change things year to year. Like I say, I've had more failures than I've had successes but that doesn't deter me from trying. What about if we turn from this kind of wet pattern we've been in into more of a dry pattern? How's that going to change your approach? 
if we turn from a wet pattern to more of a dry pattern, I guess the only thing that will really change our approach is pretty much our seeding rates on rye. We'll just back those down a little bit. Most people talk about cover crops drying the soil out. I've never seen that. Our biggest problem is if it turns dry, it's getting established. So the past two or three harvests, we've been really dry in the fall. And essentially, my dad never said, well, why are you planting? Because it's not going to grow. And I think, well, if we don't plant it, it won't grow. And we <laughs> usually end up getting the rain to get sprouted. Greg has tried a number of different approaches to cover crops, including interseeding and what he calls interspreading. This year's a little different, but usually we go in with our no-till drill and plant into our barley. And this year we'll probably just spread it and hit it with a salford for some other ruts and some other reasons. We need to level a couple things off. And then as far as corn this year and our sunflowers, some we interseeded them when they were about a couple inches tall. We've tried inner, I call it interspreading. We've tried that for a couple of years with limited success. So this year we tried interseeding and actually putting it in the ground. So what I call interspreading is we have a high wheel spreader and we can travel down the field and just spread it. So I, I just call that interspreading because we're, we're interseeding it, but we're still spreading it. And why did you decide to actually do the interseeding this year? The reason for interseeding is because some of these seeds are really small and my spreader wouldn't spread them very well. You know, we're not wide and very wide. And then also I was trying to get in the ground. Last year, we had a lot of trouble with crickets eating our seeds on top of the ground in our corn. So we wanted to get in the ground. Overall, though, Greg's cover crop program is working for him. I asked what metrics he's using to evaluate whether or not he's on the right track. As far as the trafficability is huge for us. The last couple of years, we've spread rye into standing soybeans in 30-inch rows before leaf drop. And with the wet falls, it's really helped a lot with trafficability. The header will slide across the ground better, holds the combine up better. As far as interseeding, we're kind of new at this. As of now, I just want ground cover. And speaking of evaluating metrics for cover crops, it's time to introduce our second guest on today's episode, another Greg, Greg Endress. Greg works with NDSU Extension as a cropping systems specialist. He works with extension agents, farmers, and crop advisors to advise their agronomic programs with emphasis on soybean and dry bean. He wants to bring more data to cover crop decision making. Well, the cover crops is relatively new to everybody, including myself. And even a decade ago, on the few research projects that I conduct, I just couldn't imagine doing cover crops. But everyone is talking about cover crops, and it seems like there's a lot of testimony. And in many areas, we lack data for people to, to at least start on. And I just think that if we have uh, university data for people as a starting point for whatever the strategy is with cover crops, that'll give them a better chance of being successful with their cover crop and soil health program. And besides, I guess as an older person, I'm always interested in learning and this cover crop scenario is providing a lot of opportunities to learn new things. And he's certainly learning a lot. Some of those lessons have come from evaluating planting green. In many meetings, people talk about planting green where soybeans or dry beans are planted into the live rye. And then soon after the rye is killed off, typically with herbicides such as glyphosate, and that works quite well. But we need to be cautious about this. I've conducted work for four years now with rye before dry bean. And each year we've had a relatively dry spring, either dry May or dry June or both. And we found in that scenario that planting green will not provide the highest soybean or dry bean yield. 
So there's a balance there. And what the balance is, we want to keep the rye living as long as we can to enjoy all the benefits of it, the ground cover, the moisture usage, certainly the suppression of weeds. But on the other hand, if we let it go too far, well, then it may be using the valuable topsoil moisture that we need to get our soybean or dry bean established. And so this year in 2020 was my fourth year with the system with dry bean. I thought for sure planting green would be wonderful this year. With our struggles with excessive moisture going way back into August, our snowstorm in October, and then our delayed spring this year, it seemed like, oh, we have great plenty of moisture to plant green. But no, that is not the case. In fact, when we planted green or allowed the rye even to go 10 days after we planted the beans, those are the worst looking plots this year. We just didn't have enough moisture in June. We only had about a half inch of moisture until the very end of June. So there was enough moisture in the topsoil where we let the rye go to planting or after. The rye looked good, but the dry beans are still quite behind the other treatments where we killed the rye anywhere from two to five weeks before we planted the dry bean. And I'm almost assured of having a yield reduction with the dry beans that are in the plots where we delayed the killing of the rye until planting time or after. Well, as an example on the development of the dry bean, when we killed the rye two to five weeks before the beans were planted, the dry beans at this time have several weeks of development advantage over the, the dry beans that were in the plots where we delayed the rye termination. And uh, the population of the beans is less, where we delayed the, the killing of the rye. And ultimately, yes, we'll have lower yielding dry beans in the pots where we delayed the termination of the rye. In the other treatments, I'm expecting very good dry bean yield. Certainly something to take into consideration if you're looking at planting green yourself. It's easy to overlook how much moisture that rye is using. It all boils down to amount of moisture and especially timely moisture at the time where we're establishing the dry bean. And actually before, if we have good moisture in May and then through the, whenever the dry beans are planted, where the plants are established well, then that's a really good start. And even in the River Valley in, in the Fargo area, they've had success with planting green. And I've heard testimony from people, of course, in Minnesota, as well as in South Dakota, any of the areas where moisture is not limiting during the dry bean or soybean establishment time, that timing of, of planting into living rye seems to work very well. So we just uh, got to caution people if they're in more of an arid area like we are, they just need to uh, remember to check their rye field and, and be careful about that. It's such a busy time for guys, especially guys with grain crops as well as cattle. They have a lot of things going on. And even those just only with crops, there's just a lot of things happening at that time of year. And and it's easy to, to overlook how much soil moisture the rye is using, especially if the rye starts growth early in the season. And by dry bean planting time especially, it can be well developed and be using a lot of moisture that maybe will be needed by the dry bean to get adequate plant establishment. So with this in mind and with what Greg said earlier he's seeing in his trials, when should farmers be terminating the rye cover crop? We would expect that they'll be conservative. And so with our, our work with both soybean and dry bean, we've actually been working with rye and soybean since 2013. And then with uh, rye and, and dry bean since 2017. And in, in most cases in this immediate area, in the Carrington area, we've seen the best success by terminating at least two weeks before the respective crop is planted. 
so that should be a conservative advice for most growers. For people to make that decision, Mike Osley, a research agronomist at Carrington, is, is going through a very extensive study with soybean and rye. He's looking at different planting dates with the soybean and termination dates with the rye. And ultimately, he'd like to come up with a, a guide where people can use the Endon system, where they can read what the soil moisture is and determine, okay, it's at this level, well, then I better terminate my rye. Um, so that's fine. I hope it'll be a successful way for people. I hope it'll be a simple way for people to make that determination. But I think another simple way is simply taking a shovel out there. And say if they're a dry bean grower, they're planning to put in their dry beans around Memorial Day. Well, they should be out there at least in mid-May, take a shovel and, and see what the soil moisture status is. And then after that, maybe check again the next week. And of course, we need to look at the weather forecast as well. But it'd be good to err on the conservative side and terminate the rye if, if it becomes questionable whether our top soil moisture is there to adequately establish the dry bean plants or soybean plants. One of the big benefits to cover crops is weed suppression. And many farmers see this and know intuitively that there are fewer weeds. But like any good agronomist, Greg is trying to quantify just how much weed suppression is happening. Well, if I can talk about winter rye more, a lot of people will mention that it does suppress weeds. And we certainly see that as well. But we're trying to put some numbers on that. Well, how much is the weed suppression? What weed species? We're really excited to know that the winter rye will suppress our foxtail and kochia and the, the pigweed species. And uh, so those are some primary weeds that we can have help with using winter rye as a component in the production system of either soybean or with dry bean. And in my work with the dry bean and rye, I'm really coming to the conclusion that the winter rye can serve as a substitute for a pre-emergence soil-applied herbicide. So in other words, you can either use rye as a, a suppressant and terminate the rye when, when appropriate, but that the rye will hold back weeds quite nicely. And it can be a substitute for a soil-applied herbicide. So a soil-applied herbicide in dry bean or soybean will be in the $20 per acre neighborhood. You can substitute that with the rye seed and the planting operation and then the termination operation. And it's likely it's not going to be $20. So you're trading management with herbicide usage. And at the Soil Health Cafe Talks, I've quizzed a number of people about, well, do you guys not use a, a soil-applied herbicide in, in dry beans? And they say, no, we're not that confident in our, our weed control program to let go of that important tool. But in the research that I've been involved with, we can do it. But uh, I'm working with a, a quarter acre of dry beans, and if I have a disaster, well, that's no problem. But for farmers, uh, when their livelihood is there, they want to be cautious. But I will say that with rye, at least, it's a really nice complement to herbicide programs because rye will suppress the weeds. It won't kill them off. It'll suppress them. And once the rye is terminated, the weeds will continue growth then. It'll take, I've seen as little as seven to 10 days after the rye has been terminated where the weeds will start coming through if, if there's rain, say right after the termination of the rye. But what's good is that the weeds will be small and they'll be uniform in size and it makes the post-herbicide application much better, ultimately in, in managing the weeds. 
So it, it may not throw out the soil applied herbicide, but it certainly will complement it in uh, getting better weed control in either soybean or dry bean. And with dry bean, they pose more of a challenge with weed management because they do have an open canopy and it's wherever in the canopy completely fills as compared to soybean. And so that's another reason why rye is certainly a nice component to add in their weed management toolbox. Now, you might recall earlier that Greg Amundsen was talking about how he would adjust his seeding rate in a drier weather pattern. Seeding rates for rye is something Greg Endress has been studying closely. NDSU has recommended uh, quite a range in planting rates uh, for winter rye if they're planting that in preparation for the the next year's crop. I'm a bit amused by that because uh, if you look at some of our literature, we'll say, well, plant anywhere from 20 to 70 pounds of, of rye per acre. And we're in the age of precision planting, and I'm not sure we're there yet with rye. And so I started a trial a couple of years ago just examining that, looking at three different rates of rye planted either in late September or early October, and then also in, in late October. And I was pushing the planting date because I wanted the worst case scenario, such as if people are planting rye after their soybeans are taken off or their dry bean are taken off, would it still work for the next year's crop? So that's what we're exploring, just to see if maybe we can fine-tune our uh, planting date and especially rate recommendations based on what the farmer's goals are. And so we assume all goals are to prevent soil erosion, have some sort of cover on the ground, probably moisture usage, and very likely some level of weed suppression. And earlier you had mentioned, well, how about grazing? Well, if, if that would be part of their goal, then certainly we it would be appropriate to suggest plant as early as you can with, with rye and probably plant higher rates so that there's more biomass potential out there. This will be the second year that we've done this study. So I, I hope we'll get some answers, some solid things to give to people maybe after this year, maybe as soon as after this year, but especially after a couple more years of the work. And I do plan to start planting the trial earlier, such as in the first half of September for the early date, and then the, probably the, the first half of October for the late date. Some things we're looking at would be amount of moisture available in the soil, the amount of ground cover. You can imagine if we planted 75 pounds of rye on September 1st versus 25 pounds of rye on toward the end of October, this is going to be a big difference on the amount of growth and ground cover present. But there might be some people that say, well, the only thing I care about is just having some ground cover out there and I want to go as little uh, seed cost as possible. Well, they might be the candidate then for planting in October and, and planting at a low rate. So we're hoping after this that we'll give them a little more information on what's the appropriate planting rate and date for rye. Some very interesting work being done on seeding rates, planting green, and weed suppression. What are the next burning questions? Going back to Greg Amundsen here, for him, it's fertility. Well, the biggest thing we're trying to find a solution for, in my mind, is our fertility. I've hosted farm tours. People ask me, well, how do you put down your fertility? I say, I'm not worried about it. And I'm not, but the, what I'm trying to do is I was actually cut out synthetic fertilizer altogether. And we're trying to figure out a way to do that and not hurt ourselves in the end. That's where the buckwheat comes in. We're trying that to help with our phosphorus deals. If we can make that work, uh, I'm really interested in winter peas. I know I was out the uh, NDSU Carrington last year, and I don't know how this COVID thing affected it, but they're working on a small seeded pea 
that's really small seed that so you don't have to use as many many pounds an acre. So just little things like that. And then I guess I, I'm not going to say no nitrogen, uh, no livestock integration, but we don't have livestock ourselves. That's something for the future I would like to look into because I'm more concerned about bottom line than I am about the yield. Because I can tell you, you know, on one hand, how many people have poor yields around than I do. But I can also tell you that I probably am a lower cost producer than anyone around. I don't push for the top yields. I push for the top return. Now, the more of these episodes we do, the more I wonder what drives these farmers and researchers that we feature to be so relentless in their pursuit of new ideas. Greg says for him, he's always been motivated by taking the road less traveled. I guess one thing that motivates me is being different. I don't like being, I guess, the same as everyone else. I want to try to be a little different. So as far as the farm, I'm on Twitter a lot. I really like Twitter. When I post things, I come up with a hashtag, hashtag neighbors think I'm nuts. Because <laughs> I actually enjoy it. Because then my neighbors come to me and ask me questions. What are you doing? That's actually a big motivation for me. It's, I have neighbors that you know, come to me, what are you doing? And I explain to them, oh, that's kind of interesting. I like to keep people thinking. I like to keep people on their toes. I guess my wife gets on to me all the time. One thing I always tell her is, you got to stir the pot once in a while or it'll stick to the bottom. Where do you think that comes from for you? If you ask my parents, I've always kind of been a pain in the butt. A lot of it comes stem from college, I guess. A lot of kids that were in my college classes came from big, successful, older generation farms. And they just kind of went with the flow and lots well, of the way we do it. You know, no open-mindedness or nothing. That's, you, that's how we do things. And I guess I didn't like that concept because, well, if you're always doing the same thing, you don't learn from your successes, you learn from your failures. So if you don't fail, I mean, you don't know if you're doing what you're doing is right or wrong. His advice to other farmers trying to find what works best for them on their farm, trust your instincts and get out of your own way. The biggest thing for me, I guess, would be listen to your gut. I guess not listen to other people. Our biggest holdup, this whole deal is people and the mentality of our own, it won't work. And that's kind of been our biggest holdup. I kind of wish I was a beginning farmer in that respect and never came from a farm because it, it would open my eyes a little easier and I would be able to uh, just accept things and go with it. I wouldn't have any preconceived notions. Our, big, our biggest hurdles ourselves in this whole process. Well, big thank you to Greg Amundsen and Greg Andrus for contributing to the Soil Sense podcast. We got some great perspective there on not only the science and the practice, but also the mindset that goes into cover crops. Thanks also to our sponsors of season three of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Barley Council, and the North Harvest Dry Bean Association. If you're enjoying the Soil Sense podcast, please let us know. Great places to do that are on Twitter or by leaving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. If you want more information about any of the topics discussed, check out our website, www.ndsoilsense.com. We're excited to bring you another great episode next week.